Welcome back to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Paul, it is a pleasure to have you back on the show. You just flew in from, I guess you went to all the, you went, did you just go to the Lancer convention or did you go to the one in Dallas? Is that the, is that the Lancer convention? Lancer was in Dallas. Uh, you're right. Uh, uh, well, we're going to talk about our book. Uh, we're five co-authors. Three of the co-authors went to Pittsburgh to the Cyril Wecht Institute conference. And at the same time, I was down in Dallas. How was it? How was uh, your experience? Cyril Wecht was in Pittsburgh. Yeah, go ahead. How was your experience down there? It was real good. It was the first time I went to a Lancer conference. Last year, I went to a Kappa conference. They're competing conferences. Uh, and look, they had a conveyor belt of speakers. It was just nonstop. Uh, every hour on the hour, uh, uh, we, you know, we were introduced to a new speaker. It culminated at the end with Robert Groden, who sat down and he was talking about his experiences. Uh, we had, I, I mean, I, the wealth of information that came out. There was a very young fellow, a guy called, um, Alex Harris, 14 years old, and he presented, I, I don't want to get this, I think it's called the da Dallas Cinema Club or something. He, he presented pictures that were collected and uh, archived from all the photographers that were along the motorcade route. You know, they formed sort of a club and they put together this, uh, this uh, you know, this, this whole array of pictures uh, that were amazing and and look not necessarily that it shed that much light I, we didn't have time to go into every one of them but as a 14 year old uh him pre presenting that he, he did a phenomenal job he was a bit of a surprise for for me anyway down there so it, it and while i was down there i presented um in my case i talked about the new book we came out with uh called the uh, jfk assassination chokeholds and I was interviewed twice, uh, once by TNT and another time uh, uh, by some, uh, well, some other um, uh, journalists, you know. So we even got covered by the Texas Monthly, which is a big magazine in in um, Dallas, in, in Texas. It has 2.7 million circulation. And... Uh, for them to want to cover the uh, JFK assassination, you know, they're a bit more mainstream. It, it was a bit surprising to Jim DiEugenio and myself who were interviewed by uh, by them. So, look, it was a really uh, successful and, um, uh, you know, fruitful. Uh, uh, so in terms of getting knowledge, networking, of course, there's a whole bunch of people that sell books. So you, you get to see all oh, this. I picked up someone gave me. I'll show you someone gave me what someone gave me while I was down there. This magazine from Life. It, Is that the one where the Zapruder film was printed out of frame? They put they, yes, yeah, yes. And while I was down there, someone gave me, uh, you know, a funeral, uh, a funeral magazine. So you know, just they have these rare artifacts and everything while you're down there. Uh, while I was down there. I got to buy a few books also. So it was really interesting. 
I have to ask, I mean, do you notice that the media is starting to kind of not entertain, but kind of little look at the conspiracy stuff a little bit more? I don't think it was like that in the beginning, but I'm, I think me and Larry Hancock talked about it like last year, which is that we're just starting to see alleged assassin Oswald. And I think it's now because there's so much evidence out there now to support that he wasn't ever really convicted. I think everyone kind of knows that he never stood trial. Jack Ruby took care of that. But there's just a lot of things about the official narrative that have kind of faded away. But your book is interesting because I wonder if you tackle or if you've noticed that a lot of the stuff in the JFK assassination, I'm noticed regurgitate. It's like we're arguing over the single bullet theory still. We're arguing over the magic bullet. We're arguing over Secret Service. We're arguing all these things that we thought would be settled end up coming up every couple of years or keep rehashing through different aspects of the community. And I've noticed that speaking with researchers, they've talked about it seems like we're just in a loop cycle over and over and over again. And I'm only two years into this. But I, everything I keep seeing, like for the first time, like I didn't know about a pool of blood in Dealey Plaza. It might be an anomaly. It might be something strange there, but I like to learn about that type of stuff. But it's always the single bullet. It's always the conclusion of the Warren Commission or Jack Ruby's visit at Dallas Police Headquarters that weekend. There's just some stuff that keeps coming up, and it just seems like the same arguments over and over again. Yes, I, actually – uh, you're right, because most of the research I was uh, doing in the past and the articles I've written about uh, didn't have so much to uh, have so much to do about proving there was a conspiracy. It, it was more about looking at what was the nature of the conspiracy. For me, it's a given that there's a conspiracy. I mean, uh, but so it was actually against my instincts to get with a group of authors and write chokeholds because chokeholds uh, are the 10, in our view, uh, 10 chokehold arguments, the 10 bodies of evidence that are indisputable. Uh, we felt that, you know, for the 60th, uh, for the general population, um, it would be important that we, that we, we tell the audience or the readers, here's where we're at on that score. And, and the reason we decided to do that is last year when I spoke at Lancer, we um, I, I was asked to, uh, you know, to uh, preside a channel, a channel, a panel, sorry, about uh, how history books cover the JFK assassination. Because I had done the first study of that nature about 10 years ago. What's written in history books? You know, you talk about. And Larry's right. You're you're seeing a little bit more openness about from mainstream media, but in the history books, because I'm a, as you know, a teacher. I, I do have a, a experience in private business, and I, I'm an entrepreneur also. But uh, when I, I when I looked at what was being told to history students, high school students, and and young young uh, captive audiences, they were being parroted in history books the Warren Commission version of things. And obviously that's ridiculous because there were five investigations that followed the Warren Commission. And yet the key source for teachers is still the 1964 repudi repudiated report <laughs> by the Warren Commission. So a year ago, uh, Robbie, we, we asked ourselves during uh, CAPA, what could we do? to you know challenge these teachers not the teachers but the historians or the people writing the books 
And through a weird discussion we had, one person asked me, well, what do you think of the backyard photos? I said, well, it's compelling, it's persuasive, but does it reach the level of a chokehold? He says, what do you mean by a chokehold? I said, a chokehold is indisputable. Malcolm Blunt, uh, the famous British researcher, used that term when he described how Oswald's file was being administered by the CIA. Okay, so Malcolm Blunt was able to discover that he, the way Oswald's file was handled by the CIA when he defected, quote unquote, to uh, Russia, right? Uh, he said, no, they didn't do what you would normally do with a defector. Because normally when you would defect, there'd be a 201 file open on the spot. And, uh, you know, if you defected to Russia, the files would go to the Soviet Russia division of the CIA. But that wasn't happening with the, the Oswald file. What happened was that the, 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 they didn't open a 201 file. for, And then all the files went to the Office of Security. What was happening there is the, the Oswald was sort of like a marked card. In other words, when he went to Russia, uh, they knew he was a good juror for the Russians because he had worked on a U-2 spy plane base. So the Russians would have interest in that. They hated the U-2 plane with a passion. And the idea was to see who would look into that file. They were hoping to flush out a mole, according to John Newman, in the U.S. Uh, so that's, that's basically what was going on there. Anyway, uh, Malcolm Blunt said that to him was a chokehold. And I asked Jim, Jim DiEugenio, we were sitting down. I said, you agree that that's a chokehold? He says, most definitely. So the people at the table said, well, what are the other chokeholds? And, you know, that's where we got into, well, uh, you know, Oswald was impersonated so often before the assassination, including in Mexico City. That, to me, is a chokehold. Why would a 24-year-old, uh, you know, who's supposedly a drifter, a lone nut, okay, be impersonated. And in, in the book, we show up to 20 times. You know, how, you know, how do you explain that, including the most famous time in Mexico City, right? Because when he's in Mexico City, even Hoover is telling LBJ, we have this Oswald character on tape, you know, in cahoots with uh, Russian agents, but the problem is the voice on the tape isn't Oswald's. He's telling that to Hoover. There are transcripts of that. So we have, uh, we described 20 cases of impersonation in the book. That's a chokehold. And then, you know, you talked about Jack Ruby. We'll get into that a little later. But Jack Ruby, I think we clearly show that he was on a mission, a mission to gag the key witness, to, to seal his lips forever. And that, I think, is clear. Even the HSCA. Uh, you know, says, hey, he received assistance to get down to the basement. He didn't do that on his own. And uh, he does have mafia ties. So what more do you need? Uh, so anyway, that's why Chokos was written. And it was written over a year by five of us uh, with the idea to say, OK, let, let's put all the, 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 you know, the hazy stuff aside. The, you know, like, I mean, I, I find Prayer Man compelling. But is it something I'd bring to a jury? Is it something I'd bring to, you know, court? Uh, maybe not at this point. Bart Camp is doing a heck of a good job on 
that whole uh, that whole incident of Pearman, which is a you know a fuzzy photo of Oswald in uh, the doorway during the motorcade. So you know that would be his alibi, but it's not proven. But he's done a heck of a lot of good work to say, hey, the odds are pretty good. But you know it doesn't reach for us at this point the chokehold level. So that that was the concept of uh, chokeholds. And I wrote it with um, Jim. Jim DiEugenio was one of the premier, you know, uh, researchers in the whole field and three attorneys. And I, I can get into that, why that was important in itself. So I don't know if that answers your question. So I, but here's the thing, what you did bring up, that the media is more open to it. We saw that with the Paul Landis uh, story, the uh, Secret Service guy who says he put... Well, I, I'm not saying I necessarily believe him or anything. You saw my face kind of went, so I, I noticed. You no, should... no, no. I, 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 we haven't even uh, said that we, you know, I haven't read his book. I didn't hear him in Pittsburgh, so I can't even really comment on it. But what was interesting to us is, wait a minute, he's not being just shoved, chucked aside by, um, by uh, the uh, mainstream media. He, he's being received in a different way. Same thing as when. You know, the deadline went for, uh, you know, releasing the files. Uh, Biden and Trump are breaking the law by not releasing the declassified files. They're not allowed to do that. And that was panned by mainstream media. So, yeah, you're right about that. What do you find? I mean, if we stick to something like the Warren Commission, I would consider... I wouldn't consider – I mean I would consider, I guess, a chokehold under your circumstances. I think if you look at the conclusion of the Warren Commission, if you look right on the National Archives website, it says, by the summary of the findings of the commission on the basis that Oswald was the lone assassin, they have enough evidence to support that. And I go, well, it's right in their title. They didn't even look for a conspiracy. I mean how do you eliminate within 48 hours the possibility of a getaway driver? But they did that. They immediately assumed his guilt. So they didn't look for any other evidence of an outside thing that's in there. Like their their regular page report does not match their volumes. There's a lot of errors. I mean, interviewing witnesses in Dealey Plaza. Well, if you look at the people they interviewed, was it Margaret Oswald, Ruth Payne? They weren't in Dealey Plaza. What, why would they even matter? But they just it just looks good when you have a bunch of names listed off and who's going to want to read it anyway to quote Alan Dulles. So I think, you know, the Warren Commission to me, I mean, what what would you consider if you were going to point someone at the Warren Commission? Just like real simple. This is something that's wrong. This is something that doesn't make sense. Oh, well, we put a big, juicy quote in there. It's on page. I don't know if it's page 19 of the Warren Commission. I could find you that quote. But look, it says something to the effect that while the commissioners or didn't necessarily agree on which bullet caused which damage to JFK and Connolly, right? They do agree that uh, you know the that the shots or that the, the the shots came from the Texas School Book Depository, and they said they based their disagreement on what Connolly had to say and other factors in that if you read that 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 one statement in there what it means is we know you know that boggs russell and cooper uh were dissenting commissioners about the single 
voluntary. They didn't believe it. And what they're saying, in fact, is completely contradictory because what, in fact, what, what, what it means is, well, while they don't agree on the single bullet theory, uh, you know, they, they, they do agree that the shots came from, uh, you know, the six, uh, the sixth floor. The problem with that is if you don't have the single bullet theory, you have a fourth shot automatically because then you can't explain the tag injury and the seven injuries caused by the single bullet and then the headshot. You need another bullet. Okay. So, and even the Warren Commission says that Oswald could have only fired three shots at the very most. So you have, uh, you know, that one statement there makes the Warren Commission collapse. And that, that's in the book. I could send you that quote, or I can even find it for you if you want. I, it's not far away, but it's an amazing uh, admission. Uh, but the big thing is what happened after. I mean, hey, look, first of all, the, the Warren Commission then bases a lot of its stuff on the worst autopsy ever performed in America, <laughs> in an American criminal investigation. I mean, you don't dissect the wounds. You know, you don't dissect. They say that there's a wound that goes from the lower back or the back, not the back, the lower back, but the upper back through to the neck. Okay, well, where's the trajectory analysis? It wasn't done. And it wasn't done in the brain either for the front shot. Well, Gerald Ford moved that good old wound up six inches so it fit oh, the narrative a little bit. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that. That, that There you go. I mean, uh, <laughs> that, that is absolutely amazing. And then, of course, uh, well, the, the big thing uh, is the church committee and the HSCA in their conclusions, they had to evaluate the Warren Commission. And they say, look, they didn't do a good job on evaluating whether or not there was a conspiracy. So they, they say, look, and, and it was faulty or not good for these reasons. In other words, the church committee and the HSCA both repudiate the Warren Commission on many points. On, on the nature of who Oswald was, on the nature of who Ruby was, on, uh, you know, uh, whether or not uh, Ruby, not Ruby, Oswald had met with David Ferry or not, on, uh, you know, uh, I mean, there's so many things that, that they looked into and they say, oh, boy, we disagree with the Warren Commission on this, this and that. And that's what makes the history books referral to the Warren Commission rather than the subsequent investigations that were more complete, that lasted longer, that had access to all the information the Warren Commission had and more. And they come at these, these investigations come up with a way, you know, a very different conclusions than the Warren Commission. And yet the history uh, teacher or, or uh, book writer is frozen in 1964. And he breaks the American Historical Association Code, which says, the code of conduct, which says, you should evolve with new information as it comes in. And, and the, 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 that's, that's the, the and so that's, uh, I would say the key about the Warren Commission in this week on so many fronts, but it's completely, I mean, it's it's obsolete. 
Can I it ask, is an obsolete report. Can I ask what your opinion is on the HSCA? Like, There's a little research done by the community, at least in some aspects, when it comes to the HSCA. But do you think it would have been better maintained or better equipped if Richard Sprague had stayed on the commission like it did in the beginning? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Uh, they were running a real investigation. Gaetan Fonzi was making, you know, uh, real headway in uh, Miami and discovering all sorts of relations within the Cuban exile community and, uh, you know, JM Wave, the JM Wave station. And he was on to David Atley Phillips, you know, who uh, uh, I think is one of the people who, you know, was in on making Oswald look like uh, an FPCC-linked communist, uh, you know, Castro sympathizer. Uh, anyway, you're right. Richard Sprague comes in, and they're making headway. He and and Robert uh, Tannenbaum, and they get bumped out. Now, uh, what does Blakey do? He, he, you know, he realigns the whole investigation for it to become more of a mafia based uh, well, his background is the rico stuff so i mean that, that was just going to happen that happened and he put his trust into the cia and however i have to say that years later when jefferson morley pointed out to him hey you know that guy who was the liaison between the cia and uh the and, and the, your committee uh george joanides he says what about him I said, did you know that he was running the DRE? He says, no way. I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. But Blakey was shocked because, uh, and, and it later uh, brought him to say uh, that he felt that he was betrayed by the CIA and he no longer, you know, commits to the idea that the CIA wasn't involved or 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 uh, whatnot. So, yeah, it would have gone so much further. But look. Despite that, they repudiated the Warren Commission. They uh, described relationships relationships with Oswald and David Ferry and others that could have matured into uh, a conspiracy. They believed the Sylvia Audio incident, which was a very troubling incident. They believed that the Lincoln incident uh, where... Oswald was seen with David Ferry and quite possibly Clay Shaw occurred. They also shed light on Jack Ruby's relations with the mafia. So, you know, they did. The, the, the other problem with them, though, is a lot of the great work they had was classified. For instance, the Cybert O'Neill report by the FBI, uh, you know, the that uh, that they they kept that classified, and unfortunately, that was a report because Cybert and O'Neill were uh, FBI officers who were at the autopsy, and they took notes and they they pointed out exactly where the back wound was, and they provided an opinion to say that back wound, you know, was much too low to cause. The, uh, the 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 wound that came out the front of uh, you know from from the the front of the neck, so 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 they they hid quite a few of those things. 
The other big lie by the HSCA, by the way, the big lie that they're responsible for is they made this boulder dash claim that the Bethesda doctor personnel witnessed different wounds in the back of Kennedy's head that, you know, they, they claimed that the witness testimony there was different from what the Parkland doctors saw. Because the Parkland doctors, many, many of them described an exit wound in the back of the head. So when the ARB came around and started showing the diagrams and the depositions of the Bethesda personnel, said, wait a minute, it isn't different. They're describing a major defect in the back. And that, you know, the last straw on that, uh, that Bugliosi had to attack was, well, you know, if you're going to look at witness testimony, I prefer photographic evidence because there is a photo where you see Kennedy's scalp intact. Yeah. That's been explained. You know who's holding up the scalp? Boswell. Boswell's holding it up. And he even says, I'm holding it up here. And But underneath there, there's a major defect. So, you know, that last, last straw to try and explain the back of the head uh, wound, uh, the exit wound in the back of the head by Bugliosi is now completely destroyed. You know, I, so, uh, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. Had Sprague and Tannenbaum, uh, they were formidable and they were going to run it like a real investigation. And they had a track record, right, as lawyers, uh, you know going after corruption. I think uh, Sprague was Philadelphia and Tannenbaum was where in New York. They both were, you know, they would never lose a case. And But they went up against, you know, a very, um, very formidable, just like Garrison. Garrison was up against too much. So were Sprague and, uh, and Tannenbaum. So, uh, yeah, you're right. What about, um, what are your thoughts on Burt Griffin when he put in, Jack Ruby's telephone records, yet he still believes that Oswald acted alone. He believes no conspiracy, even though he showed that there was obviously some up uptick of uh, phone calls from Jack Ruby to various uh, different uh, skeptical figures, I'd say. I have, in our book and in articles I've written, quotes from Burt Griffin. You can hear him if you go and look at one of our links. I think it's for a BBC documentary where he is saying things like we were lied to. We couldn't rely on the FBI when it came to Jack Ruby. They did a shallow investigation. You know, when the Warren Commission went to interview Jack Ruby down in Dallas, uh, Warren went down. Griffin and uh, and who was the other one? Griffin and uh, O'Neill. Oh, Sir O'Neill. Blakey? No, there are two who were assigned to look into Ruby. Well, Griffin was one. I know Stern. Bert Griffin and uh, anyway, it uh, doesn't matter. It's in our, our, our book. The point is, is they weren't even allowed to attend that meeting. They, they didn't attend that meeting. And they absolutely felt that there were possible relations between Ruby and the um, the Cuban exiles that could have linked him to Oswald because both had links to uh, Cuban exiles, including Ruby. So, uh, you know, what they say right now, I'll tell you, I could 
I wish I had been in front of him because I know he spoke uh, publicly recently and I would say, well, didn't you say this at one point? I absolutely. And he basically says we were lied to about Ruby by the FBI. So if you're lied to by the chief investigative arm that's giving you all your information and you're on the Warren Commission and you're reliant upon them to get that information, Oh. The other thing too, where he's gonna, he would have major trouble, is that the HSCA uh, concluded that Ruby likely was in Cuba meeting with Traficante while Traficante was in prison. Now, why is that important for your audience? Right, Traficante was one of the leading mobsters in the U.S. at the time. He had run casinos and the heroin, uh, uh, heroin uh, crimes and dealings uh, from Cuba. He was providing Cuba and U.S. with heroin. And he was one of the, the mobsters approached by the CIA to try and assassinate Castro. So, you know, you have, and, and then when you look at people of interest in Oswald's world, like Eladio del Valle or Bernard Barker. These are Cuban exiles. Well, they all had strong links with Traficante when he was in Cuba. Okay, so so I'm sorry. Uh, the HSCA and uh, other, uh, organ other investigators don't see in Jack Ruby someone who is another lone nut, right? They see in him as someone who had mafia ties, and you're absolutely right, the HSCA investigated his phone calls during the months. And I have a chart in the book that shows how much they went up before he... Uh, 110%. You know, oh, it was, was just incredible. And it doesn't include his personal meetings. He was talking to Hitman, you know, and he was talking to... So if you look at the HSCA conclusions on Ruby... That's one area where Blakey didn't mince words. Uh, and he, he said, oh, no, no, no. This, this, I, I'm convinced that Ruby had something to do with the assassination and the removal of Oswald. I mean, words to that effect. Why do you think um, – I mean, do you believe that he did go to Havana? I mean, I think it's proven that he did go to Havana. But it's weird how they didn't accept the statements from the – what's it – Hudson, the British investigative journalist that was there, and also Louis McWillie, a mob figure, Traficante, or um, Lauren Hall that were also there as well, too, locked up in Castro's prison. But they'll accept the statements like the Warren Commission will when it comes to Karen Carlin and the Western Union stuff with the money. They accept her over, you know, oh, Seth Cantor, who is what, a White House reporter that said he saw Ruby at Parkland Hospital and saw Ruby at the Dallas headquarters? Oh, yeah. The uh, Warren, again, the HSCA, because what you said there, right, is that before uh, he killed Oswald, he was stalking him, right? Because there were at least four or five occasions where he was seen in spots that should have been unattainable in the uh, Dallas Police Department building. He, you know, there's just no way. Like, you've just had the worst security in the world in trying to protect the president you know, with the open windows and you name it. And then now you have the worst security in the world in terms of protecting his alleged assassin. I mean, 
you know, twice in a row there? Give me a break. So, um, so you're, you're absolutely right that he was talking. Uh, and the thing is, is Steph Cantor, who wrote a great book about Jack Ruby and who was a well-known journalist, I think, in Dallas. White House reporter. White House reporter. Oh, good. Thank you. So he said, hey, you know what? I saw Jack Ruby at Parkland Hospital when Kennedy was taken there. And the Warren Commission dismissed it. But the HSCA said, no, I think he was likely right. So that was a different conclusion. The point being is you had a stalker, right, in Ruby who was brought in. And, and you know, because Oswald didn't die, I think Oswald was meant to have been killed in the Texas theater where he was arrested. But he's been questioned there for 12 hours. And think of this. There's no stenographer. There's no tape. Uh, Bart Camp just wrote a book on he, he pieced together what he likely said. And, and because he was able to find Hostie's notes, uh, one of the people, uh, FBI agent Hostie's, uh, was part of the inter interrogation. I think he arrived 15 minutes after the interrogations of Oswald began when he was arrested on that Friday. And he, his notes reveal Oswald's alibi. Hey, Oswald, what did he say? He says, no, I uh, was on the first floor having my lunch. I went to the second floor to get a Coke. I came back. I was with two, I think he called them Negro uh, co-workers. And he gave the name of one, something juniors, I forget. And the other one, I don't know his name. Okay. And then he says, later on, I went to see uh, you know, the uh, I went out to see the parade. Okay. So that's why you have a further link to prayer man. Okay. Because he, he basically says that's what he did, right? Well, it confirms what Jesse Curry said later to John Mancino when he interviewed him. Jesse Curry had a – John Mancino asked Jesse Curry if he ever had doubts about Oswald being the assassin. And when I was talking to John Mancino, uh, Jesse Curry had told John to shut the tape recorder off. And uh, when they were off air, so everything I say now is going to be hearsay. But he said, I did when they asked Oswald where he was when the shots rang out or when the motorcade was going through. And he stated that he was on this floor. And you can tell because there were two Negro people there that saw me there. Well, they went and found those people. And those people said they never saw Oswald. And then Jesse Curry. Oh, and can I correct you on that? What well, this is said. Jesse Curry's statements. No, no, OK, go on. I'll, I'll tell you. I'll, I'll tell you what I heard afterwards. But keep going. Well, Jesse Curry said that when they went back in there and told him that they didn't see Oswald there, um, Oswald stood up, put his hands on the table and said, how would I know that there was two people there if I wasn't there myself? And then Jesse Curry stated that's when he started having doubts. That's what well, I heard from John Mancino. There you go. There, that's beautiful what you just brought up because I was going to bring – what uh, Sylvia Marr says about that incident in Accessories After the Fact is that the uh, two black uh, individuals – stated that there was a white guy there but they couldn't you know they couldn't recall who it was or recognize it but you're absolutely right that it would have been impossible for him to know that they were there so for him to say hey i picked out these two out of the blue and they say yeah we were there we saw uh someone but we don't know who it was and that's more about you know people especially black people in dallas 
trying to, you know, save their butts there. They're afraid. I mean, they're There's afraid if they killer. don't walk. Nobody wants to be associated with a cop killer. Oh yeah, they they they, they don't want they don't they want to walk the line. They're going to throw us in jail. They're going to do something to us if we if we don't say what they want us to say. So yeah, that that is an extremely important point in the alibi, and I can't stress it enough. And I'm glad you brought it up. The fact that he said identified two people who admitted. Now, out of the you know dozens and dozens of people that work in the Texas School Book Depository, how could you identify the two people who say they happen to have been there, you know, in the uh, on the first floor, eating their lunches? So, so, but the, the only difference I have, maybe you're right in front of uh, Curry, but what I read is that they actually said, well, there was someone there, but refused to identify Oswald. They didn't identify who it was, but. Moot point. You're right. What about, do you believe Roger Craig when they brought him into the, I mean, it's the Rambler story of seeing a person that was later identified when, I don't remember if it's Fritz or Hosty, brought him into the interrogation and had him identify and say that was the person that Roger Craig saw, but then everyone denies Roger Craig even being there. Well, I tend to believe Roger Craig, and I'll tell you why. I have a comment about it at a, in a different way is uh, first off, that Rambler was seen by two or three other people, and there's even a photograph of it. Okay, the Rambler. You you can't see really who's in it, but uh, it was there. So there, there, there's no denying that. The second thing is there were multiple sightings of the Rambler and what he described as someone running to it. The other element in the Rambler, he describes a driver as Latino with massive shoulders, okay, massive shoulders, and he, he has certain uh, descriptions. Go and look at them. Are you going to say Morales? Don't you say Morales on me? No, I don't know who okay. it is, but it's. I wrote an article called Oswald's Escort. Oswald's Escort is uh, the multiple sightings of Oswald and a short, stocky Latino. Sylvia, Sylvia Audio describes this person. Perry Russo describes this person. Roger Craig, Dean Andrews, okay? And they describe this guy. That, so that guy, when he shows up, when, whenever you hear, there, there's at least 45 sightings that have been, uh, you know, witnessed of Oswald with Latinos. And at least 25 of them in, uh, describe a short Latino, stocky, athletic build. And it set off a manhunt. The FBI actually set, had a manhunt looking. Garrison was looking for this guy. Uh, the FBI was looking for him. I think he may have been found, but uh, it became problematic, you know, because this was a guy who was in the Guy Bannister, David Ferry world, you know, uh, network uh, of Cuban exiles. So, uh, I tend to believe Roger Craig. Would I, you know, use him as my only witness? Uh, no, uh, you know, he, 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 what he saw on his own doesn't constitute a chokehold, but it, there is some corroboration to what he has to say. What about the multiple investigations you mentioned earlier? Um, do you think any of them really had an attempt or were successful in doing anything? I mean, they added some details that are different than the Warren Commission, like we mentioned, but the HSCA. But 
everything has been put together by people that either had some type of establishment with military or they weren't given the full evidence of the scenarios, whether it's the Rockefeller Commission, which was later changed up and uh, suppressed by Gerald Ford. And that is admitted to in the history books. Um, he was not ever going to have that go out there. He even talked about because it, it was exposing CIA activities. And the thing the Rockefeller Commission investigated was if there was any members of the CIA in Dealey Plaza, which if you talk about the Knoll agent or the Secret Service alleged on the Knoll, I mean, Nancy Whiteford's done great work on this, or she told me about it, which was that the CIA was printing up passes for the Secret Service. They had done that way before, before the assassination. So, I mean, it could be potential that it was in cia agent up there on the knoll i mean a lot of people saw that it never i mean necessarily wasn't investigated into but that's one of those anomalies that i would call like prime evidence we have the conclusions of the secret service that say that there was no secret service members up there none were up on that knoll yeah yeah hey by the way congratulations because i'm seeing a heck of a lot of interesting knowledge you've acquired in just a short two years uh, and it's amazing i told uh, you we had to redo this at one point <laughs> well you know officer smith a motorcyclist went up to the knoll and he saw a secret service agent guy flashing you know a card and uh, all the Secret Service agents were accounted for, and none of them were in the Grassy Knoll area. So uh, so you're right. And Sidney Gottlieb, I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was... Pardon? MK Ultra, Sidney Gottlieb? Yeah, yeah. Well, he uh, he's the guy who developed poisons for, uh, you know, out of the, the technical division of the CIA, uh, you know, for assassinations, really... He's the one that made the powder to make Castro's beard fall out too, but also made the uh, botulism pills. He, he, well, his his division and all that, but strangely enough, they had another uh, another task, and one of them was preparing, uh, uh, you know, CIA, I uh, know, uh, Secret Service identification for uh, their agents. That was one of their tasks, and you can imagine that the CIA probably had to. Uh, you know, investigate someone before he became a Secret Service agent. That that could make sense. But they did make, and Abraham Bolden strongly suspected that there was going to be Secret Service uh, identification tampering up in Chicago. And he, he brought that up. And he, he the reason he brought it up is apparently the agents, you know, after the attempt or in Chicago or after the assassination were asked to completely change their, you know, their IDs, their cards, their books and everything. And don't ask me all the details on that, but Bolden said that smacked of uh, a cover-up, you know, to hide or manufacture evidence. But, uh, that that's a little uh, a little hazy for me, uh, but you're you're right to bring it up. Uh, I do think that that was probably in play, uh, because again, who was that guy? And even the Warren Commission or the HSCA, I think the HSCA points out that that particular identification uh, was troublesome. They didn't. They never got to the bottom of who Officer Smith uh exchange with and he may have been one of the killers he may be he may have been a spotter for sure so well for sure he he may have been so yeah that was if we redirect this back to um uh uh, jack ruby in dallas police headquarters 
we might have some differing opinions because, I mean, you can think it's a grandmaster conspiracy. I don't necessarily think that much. I think a lot of evidence shows that Dallas police was pretty corrupt. And I think that they were trying to steamroll Oswald and they realized that they breached his his rights as a person to have, you know, a lawyer present, not letting his family see him until Saturday. What lawyer's office is going to be open on a Saturday? So the ACLU did go down there, but they didn't really focus too much on how Oswald was doing. But I think that was a Jack Ruby was connected with Dallas police. I think they had him come in to silence Oswald because they realized if this went to trial, Dallas police was screwed. I mean, they manufactured evidence on Oswald. They did a bunch of things unconstitutional. And I think that's that's why I think Jack Ruby was there. I think you're right. I think the uh, order probably came from uh, uh, another mafioso who, uh, you know, was connected to the plotters. So uh, someone probably maybe even Traficante, you know, or Marcelo saying, okay, uh, Jack, you're a guy in Dallas. Uh, you know, the, the, the DPD, um, uh, you're going to take out Oswald. And I think he got advanced information on when he would be transferred. Uh, keep in mind that there was a call that came in the night before saying, we're going to kill your guy. We're going to kill him. Billy Grammer said it was sounded like Jack Ruby. He identified yeah, him it later. sounded like Jack Ruby. Jack Ruby was probably scared shitless, excuse the term of that assignment, and knew what would happen if he got caught. So it was probably his way of trying to, you know, get out of it. And then you look at the protection, right? You see Captain Fritz. <laughs> Do you ever see the, the sprint he makes to get out of the way? The two horns go off and you have the HSCA conclusion that he received assistance. So I wouldn't say it's the Dallas, the DPD that gave him the order, but I would say there was some cooperation there between uh, Ruby-connected uh, individuals within the force to make it easy for him to kill Oswald. Because, you know, I mean, how he could be stalking him for three days in that building is just outrageous, you know. And a lot of people, when you look at Oswald and the wallet, that was planted right you can see that on film it was captured good thing it was captured on film uh but someone handed is it westcroft what's his name again um uh, one of the guys who's suspected of being in on planting evidence against oswald uh anyway they, they produced a wallet but the problem is, is now he's up to about five or six wallets oswald oswald possessed six wallets at the end of the day, you know, so uh, who has six wallets? For a guy yeah. that doesn't have money, he's got a lot of wallets. Yeah, he's got more wallets than he has cash. You're right. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> so I, I entirely agree with you. We have, uh, I think our book, our chapter on Ruby is an excellent one because there is, what's the alternative, right? He said, um, uh, you know, uh, a, a spur nightclub, of insanity, and a nightclub owner. Want yes, yeah, spur. You know, out of grief of of JF. You know, he's the only mafia connected guy who kind of had nice feelings for the Kennedys, who were popping all of his colleagues in jail. 
you know. <laughs> so all of a sudden he would have nice feelings. And you had people like Traficante, who he tries to spring from jail, who can't stand Kennedy, right? And Marcelo. Marcelo says when you were in that type of business and you wanted to get a stripper, say from New Orleans, like he did with Shada. Shada was a new a New Orleans stripper. Well, you went down and you dealt with Marcelo or his mafia. And you say, okay, well, you know, uh, so that wasn't a line of business, you know, that was made for the better business bureau type of gentleman. You know, it was, it, it, it just smacked of mafia or underworld. He wasn't a big time mobster, but he wanted to be, mo you know, he wanted to be a made man. He wanted to be connected. And he was doing everything. That's why he went to try and spring uh, Traficante from a Cuba jail, is to be in with the big guys. And that's, you know, his friend Louis McWilly worked for Traficante. So. What, I mean, out of right, working with the other authors and creating this book, I mean, what are you hoping that you can get the younger generation on board? I mean, did you see, besides the 14-year-old that was at the Lancer conference, I mean, have you seen, I'm trying my best to get my friends interested in it, but it's just so distant for everybody. If it's not like this week or last week, they don't care. Well, you know, here's a bit of positive. Quebec City has been phenomenal. Let me explain to you why. When I was in Lancer, at Lancer, uh, I, I think the thing that I said that touched a hot button for everyone, I said, you know, we're all doing great presentations, and there's 250 people here, but we're preaching to the already converted. I said, how do we get the message that's going around in this room out in this city here, outside these walls? And the solution is marketing. Now, in our group, we have people that are marketing savvy, uh, you know, myself, I used to own an advertising agency. So when when um, Oliver Stone came to Quebec City, we packed venues. And it wasn't JFK researchers. It was history, uh, history students. It was uh, cinema buffs. It was where people just like you and me, well, not like you and me, but like people you know say, hey, what is it about this murder, uh, you know, who done it of the last century? And look, we had one venue that attracted 600 people. We had another venue, we showed the documentary, 250, and Oliver Stone took questions after showing the documentary. And the people in Quebec were just going crazy. This year, uh, we sent out a press release about the book. And I've been interviewed at least six or seven times with, uh, you know, local newspapers, um, uh, radio stations, and so on and so forth. Yesterday, I'll send you a link because, you know, I was interviewed on the radio and they began the, 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 the show with a song from the birds about JFK. I, I had never heard it. Beautiful song. He was a friend of mine. I don't know. I'll send you a link to that, Robbie. It's he was a, a friend of mine as Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, uh, he was talking about JFK in the in the bird song, huh. but I'll send you. Do you imagine that? I'm. I was cranking interview. the Lee Harvey Oswald song this morning because when we're recording this, it's the anniversary of his death too. Oh, 
Oh, geez. So look, I'll, I'll send you a link to that uh, beautiful song. And that that's how it starts it. And, and then, so what we're doing here, like I talked to you about the Texas Monthly interview, Jim and, and I. So we're getting uh, exposure with mainstream media because the book has been on sale for over a week now. And it's doing pretty well. It's doing pretty well. We're really happy. Uh, so the point is, is people would be amazed uh, at, you know, let, let me give a trick to any of the local, the researchers that are going to listen to your show. When they do research uh, and you're from Kansas City or you're from Cincinnati, Ohio, and there, there, there's a general interest by the AM's radio stations and the local, uh, you know, weeklies or publications say, what is this citizen from our town doing in this research? You know, what, why, why, why does he have this interest? So there was an awful lot of interest in Oliver Stone, but now there's interest in Paul Blow. What is this Quebec City guy? doing in these documentaries, writing a book, and this and that. So I have CBC Radio, which is our national uh, radio station, that has taken contact with our PR person and said, hey, uh, we may want to have Paul Blow on because we're doing a special on JFK sometime in the winter. So can we stay in contact? So uh, Jim Eugenio was on Fox News. Now he didn't talk about the book, but they plugged the book. They, you know, they gave him that pedigree of having written the Chokehold's book. So what I'm trying to say is the solution for this is marketing. And that includes talking to people like you, talking on podcasts, going to conferences, but every now and then send out that press release and send it to some of these authors. Because AM radio, for instance, or talk radio, is going to give you a much more sympathetic ear than maybe CNN would, you know? So, uh, and, and the beauty is, is the percentage of people now that believe in a conspiracy has ticked back up to around 65% in that latest polls. So I think that the timing is pretty good and that the, the if people were a little bit more marketing savvy in terms of getting the information out, they would do a heck of a, we would do better. We would do a lot better. Uh, I have nothing against the conferences. They're, they're really useful. But how do you get the conference to go a little bit more mainstream and, and, and reach more of the general population? That's what we have to think about. And, and there are marketing solutions there, like social media, uh, public relations, uh, you know, finding it, it's amazing. We just sent out a, a press release on the wire and it went out to all the media saying, hey, a group of five people have written a new book. You'd be surprised. It's been picked up in Italy. It's been picked up in Japan. Uh, we're selling books all around the world right now. I'm not saying that it's in the thousands and thousands every week. But, uh, you know, we, we're off to a hot start. And as, as we're getting visible, just going on your show there, we can see an uptick in the sales. You know, like whenever we do a podcast. And uh, so that's what I would say. And boy, you know, make sure, don't, don't, don't underestimate the power of, you know, just 
sending something and, and getting it, uh, you know, people follow. Like we started a Facebook page, okay, for your audience. If you go on our website, we have a website called jfkassassinations.com. That way you can find out about the book. But then you click uh, follow us on Facebook. You should go there, Robbie. Go and follow us because I have all the pictures of the people I met at Lancer. And I have pictures of Jim and the gang in Pittsburgh. And I have all sorts of information. So the solution is marketing. And uh, and I think with time, it's going to happen. Uh, one thing we should do, Robbie, is uh, find our voices to object to the departments of education about what's written in history books. I mean, you know that there's nothing better than a parent saying, I don't like what you're teaching my kid. You're, you're relying on the Warren Commission, but that's obsolete. And it's no longer really the official government position. It's not just the kids, though. It's the whole academic community. The issue is, is that the assassination is so toxic. It's so controversial that you can't no academic wants to touch it. When they start teaching about Kennedy, they gloss over some of the things and skip right over either to the Vietnam War and then go right into Johnson because everything always leads back to questions about the assassination. Monica Wiesack, me and her talked about this on the show, is that academics have really kind of missed out on the JFK, the anything historical about what he actually was trying to do or was doing, it's because everything always leads back to the assassination. If you go to the Vietnam question, was he pulling out of Vietnam or was he staying in Vietnam? Another, what I would call, I call it a stranglehold, one he gets stuck in, you can't get out of. Um, but it's one of these questions where it leads into what ifs, but it ends up boiling back to the Kennedy assassination. Well, what happened if he would have lived? What would he have done? Well, let's get into his assassination. Nobody wants to touch it because it's so controversial. So it's about cleaning that up for people as well, too. It wasn't easy for me to look up information and reach out to researchers. I didn't know who was lone nut or conspiracy. And, you know, the community is open in some sense, but also there's a divide because everyone wants mob or military industrial complex or something of that sort. And it's real simple. If we all believe conspiracy, the best thing we can do is get the public in on the discussion. Oh, you're right. Uh, and it's an important point because if you look at what happened in terms of confidence in the American government and media, when did it start plummeting? The year the Warren Commission was produced. And then it went down with the other political assassinations, and then Vietnam, and then Watergate, and you have Iran-Contra, this supposed weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So, you know, when you get uh, the population that's being lied to, you get a very polarized uh, situation that you see in the U.S. right now. Uh, you know, you, 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 you have people who are being told, I don't want to get political, but you're being told that uh, that one of the candidates is is corrupt and, you know, and this and that. And then you have the population saying, well, I don't care. We don't believe you. You know, we, we just don't believe you. We've had enough. Uh, we want to change, right? Because uh, we, we've been going from Democrat to Republican, but it's the same people determining the agenda no matter what, you know? So that's, there's skepticism right now that you see and you feel it as a Canadian who looks down and talks with Americans. I try to understand both sides of, you know, and I, and I come across, I say, Oh boy, 
people are angry, people are frustrated, and um, they don't, you know, no matter what, like for certain people, no matter what Fox says, they won't believe it. For other people, no matter what CNN says, uh, they don't believe it because they're just mouthpieces in, in their opinions, right? So that's where I think, uh, you know, you, you, you all get a discussion like we're having, right, on uh, most of the mainstream stations. You're not going to get something that's, you know, where we, we actually talk about and, and, you know, or sometimes we'll just have to say, we don't know. We're not sure. We're not sure. We don't have all the answers. But certain things look suspicious. Or, you know, so um, I think uh, if you take all the podcasts and line them up, you guys are doing a tremendous service. And uh, it will take a while, but I think for, uh, the cream will rise to the surface at one point. Good. Paul, I really appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show. Um, is there a place where people can find your links to your book and any other links you'd like to promote? You mentioned a Facebook page, but do you have any um, other social media platforms? Okay. So if you go to jfkassassination.com, you will see our, uh, you'll see all the information about the book. You'll know how to order it. Uh, you can get it right now on amazon.com, amazon.ca. You have, we have Kindle format, we have paperback format, and we have hardcover. Uh, if, uh, uh, and if you go on that website, at the bottom, there'll be a direct link to our Facebook page. And, you know, if you want to, if your audience wants to send us a question or a comment, we try and look at them every day and answer them. So, you know, uh, if, if people also, I'll tell you, you know, something, a little something that's happening is so far we're getting wonderful ratings on uh you know not a ton of them there's been like i think seven ratings so far on amazon six of them are five on five and one guy gave us a one okay so if your readers do uh, get the book and want to give a nice heartfelt comment you know that, that that's realistic we're not looking for any free rides here but we're really proud of this book. I'll, I'll tell you, uh, Robbie, what's different with this one is you take Jim and I, what we brought in in terms of research, and we we talked to people like Larry Hancock and, and, and you know, some of the biggest researchers, and we really got, I think, the most up-to-date, uh, you know, uh, assessment of the situation uh, up to today because we're the most recent, and we even have things from the most recent releases that took place in August this year that are part of our book, okay? Uh, so, but here's the thing is the three attorneys, they kept badgering us with saying, hey, you haven't really reached a standard of proof yet that we would like to bring to a jury. So, you know, when we'd write an article to prove that, 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 that uh, the, a chapter on to prove that, that Ruby was a, uh, sorry, on a mission. Well, we had these three lawyers saying, uh, okay, well, you're, you're speculating here, or you, I need a source for this, okay? So we have like 700 sources in that book, and it's all primary evidence. What do I mean by primary? It's from direct witnesses, it's depositions, it's filmed, it's not 
hearsay. So, uh, so I think uh, if you go on that, you'll discover who the authors are. If you go on our website and our, you'll discover, you know, a little bit more about the book. Uh, again, you can buy that on uh, Amazon.com, but it's also available through Barnes and Nobles and Apple Books, and it's it's available worldwide. All right, you can buy this book in Australia. In we're seeing sales in Italy, in in you name it. So, uh, thank you so much. And uh, you know, again, if they correspond with me, I'll be happy to answer their questions. Well, I'll make sure I link all that in the description. Paul, it's been a pleasure chatting with you again. And thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank. Stay tuned for next episode.